Good morning. It's great having you here this morning, Palm Sunday. And uh, as we get started, I just want to just simply say thank you to this church family um, for our, on behalf of our family. We came into 2017 with news we did not expect, and that was a lung cancer diagnosis for Amy's mom. And we got that at the end of January, and within four weeks, she went home to be with the Lord. It's not how we designed our year. But I got to tell you, you guys have been very supportive to us. You have lifted us up in prayer. You provided cards. Uh, there were some meals. I mean, even just yesterday, um, a plant drove up in a card. I mean, people brought it. <laughs> Never let a plant drive your car. They always soil the seat. Unmet expectations. It affects all of us. And I, I got to tell you, it's one thing for me to come alongside a family who has experienced loss, and it's another as a man to go through it ourselves. And so I am really grateful for um, how you guys have cared for us. It, it just raises even the value of getting to be a part of this family. So thank you. We're going to talk about unmet expectations with God today because it happens to us. Just when we think we're going one direction and we we figure out that uh, that God is moving, things change. There's an unexpected curve. And man, it can sometimes leave us reeling. It's actually a very vulnerable time in our lives where we can make decisions or bargains and we have a very real enemy who can, who can come right into the midst of that situation and continue to cast seeds of doubt. And we can buy the lie that it's somehow something that we did to offend God and that's why the circumstances happened. Or because we're so thick in the head that we're not learning a specific lesson, so God had to put us through this so so we'd learn something. Now, there's always lessons to be learned in suffering, but I rarely find it's true that God's going, well, (laughs) you haven't learned this yet, so zing. And we can react by simply drawing away from God. We know that he's someone that, that, that we're supposed to trust. How do we deal with him when, when he allows the unexpected or he allows the loss or he allows the hurt or the abuse or the abandonment or whatever the case may be? And it can leave us wrestling with the question, how can he be good if this is my circumstance? We need a wise plan. Because I don't think it's the right thing to withdraw from God. I don't think it's the right or wise thing to stop praying. But that can sometimes be a temptation because we can think, well, maybe I've been praying the wrong things. And that's what's landed me in in this spot in the first place. So let's not make things worse by praying more. Have you guys ever wrestled with that? I don't think that's the right or wise response. And so... We need to find what is. And that's our aim this morning. 
Last week, Joe shared four pillars of wisdom that were found out of Joshua 1.8. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the setting of the triumphal entry of Jesus. We're going to look at some of the things that are found there. And then we're going to apply this problem of how do we deal with unmet expectations with God through the four pillars of wisdom. Those pillars are knowledge, understanding, experience, and relationships. Something to know, something to understand, something to live, and then something to give. And that's our aim, that we would find hope for our own hearts, but then that we would be equipped to help others who are dealing with the rug being pulled out from underneath their feet as well. So let's talk a little bit about the setting of the triumphal entry of Christ. We know that it's at the time of the Passover. And so this was a gathering point. A pilgrimage took place in the land of Israel at this time, in Palestine. And, and it's estimated that between two and three million Jews would come into the city of Jerusalem for this one occasion. It was a week-long celebration. And as they traveled, they would sing songs that are found in the Old Testament scriptures. I believe it's Psalm 113 through 118. They're called the Psalms of Ascent because Jerusalem's on a, on a hilltop, on a mountaintop. And so as they ascended, they would sing these community songs together. This is still being practiced, this, but this is a picture from the 1940s. Look at the number of people crowding in the streets. This was the season. This was the occasion. It's one of the greatest celebrations in the Jewish calendar where they remember how God set them free from slavery in Egypt. And so that was happening at this time. Then there was the disciples' expectation. They had traveled with Jesus. They had seen Jesus. They had seen him raise the dead, cast out demons, calm the storm and the wind with just a spoken word. They saw it firsthand. And they went from being thinking, wow, he's a great teacher, to, man, he must be a powerful prophet, to, oh my goodness, Peter declared, you are the Christ. And they were beginning to understand that he was the Messiah. He was the chosen one of God who would, who would establish a kingdom. They heard Jesus use this title called the Son of Man over and over and over. It's the most used title Jesus used of himself. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. Why would he do that? Well, because in Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy that one like a Son of Man from the Ancient of Days would come and establish an everlasting dominion. Every time he used that title, son of man, it tied back to that prophecy. And Jesus is saying, literally, I'm the man. (laughs) And his disciples are seeing it and they're believing it almost and so much so to the point that they began jockeying for positions. When you set up your kingdom, do I get first chair and can my brother get second chair? In fact, can we just have our mom plead our case for us? And James and John did that. They sent their mama to go to Jesus and say, hey, can my boys have the best seats in your kingdom? The other disciples, they weren't too cool with that. But do you see that this is the rising expectation for them? And they thought, Jesus, this is his, this is his plan. He's going to come in. We're going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to go right to the Roman garrison. He's going to kick down the, do- the doors. He's going to overthrow Caesar. And we are going to take over the earth. That was their expectation. But we have then Jesus' presentation. Jesus was fulfilling a plan they didn't understand. Have you ever wondered why Jesus came at the time that he did? Like, why didn't he come in the 80s, in the age of the mullet? 
Have you ever wondered that? Like, why then? Why, why God's plan? Well, I mentioned Daniel 7, but in Daniel chapter 9, there's a prophecy of a timeline. And most conservative interpreters see that timeline being fulfilled from, from the time of the year 445 BC to the year of the actual entry of Jesus into the, into Jerusalem. It's the literal fulfillment of that timeline. Why did Jesus come when he came? Because he's fulfilling his father's plan for salvation. It talks about the anointed one would come into the city and be cut off for his people. He came to make atonement, and this was the time, this was the place. He was fulfilling his father's plan that his disciples didn't understand. So this is the occasion. This is the whole mixture. Two to three million people in the city, hundreds of thousands of people on the road singing these songs together. And then when Jesus comes in, riding on, a, on the foal of a donkey, they begin crying out that he's the Messiah. So here's the passage. You can turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. The passage says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. When we think about these wise pillars that we can stand on to see us through unmet expectations with God, we start with the first one, and that's knowledge. There's something to know. And Jesus himself says this first one, and that is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This means that he's far more than a good teacher. He's far more than just some historical figure. It means that he's God himself, God in the flesh. He is Lord. He is fulfilling a plan that is not our plan. And we need to be reminded of his identity. You are God. We look at this passage. There are some things that rise up from this story. Jesus had told his two disciples, he gave them instructions about the donkey and its colt. He said, untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, he shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Because he's God, there's a couple of characteristics of being God that are found in this passage. The first is, is that Jesus knows everything. He knows everything. He knows that before they even enter this next village, there are a couple of animals waiting for him. And so he sends his disciples ahead and he tells them exactly what to say. Because he knows everything. The theological term is that Jesus is omniscient. He knows it all. He knew what was happening then. He knows your circumstances. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're thinking. He knows everything because he's God. Secondly, he's in control of everything. He knows everything and he's in control. We see that displayed because of what he tells his disciples could happen, that they could come in and the owners of the donkey would go, hey, what gives? Why are you taking a donkey? And Jesus said, you'll say the Lord needs them. 
And that is exactly what happens. And when his disciples deliver that message, the Lord needs them, they release the animals to them. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He knows everything. And he's in control of all things. And on the one hand, we go, wow, that's, that's great truth. But what kind of God is he really? Is he cold and distant? Is he disinterested? Does he not see what's happening in our lives? What is he like? Especially in light of my circumstances. And this is what moves us to the second pillar. We can, we can know that Jesus is Lord and that he's God and that he's, he's, he's fulfilling a plan that's not ours. But what is this God like? So we need to understand Jesus is faithful and true. He's faithful and true. As God, he is beyond us, but he is faithful. We've already seen a couple of prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling, one being the Son of Man, the other the timing of his visitation. He wept over the city. He said, he said if only you would have known that this was the time of my visitation to you. That's recorded in Luke 19. But they missed it. Jesus is also fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, where there's this specific prophecy about him coming in, the Messiah entering in on the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is faithful to fulfill the plan for which he was sent. It's not our plan. It's his Father's plan. He faithfully fulfilled all prophecies concerning his first coming. And now what is Jesus doing? He's working all things to prepare for his return. He's coming back. That's his agenda. He came to give his life and to save us from our sin. And that was his first coming. He died for us. There's nothing left for us to earn with God. Jesus was the full payment for our sin. And we can have forgiveness and freedom if we would know and understand Jesus is faithful and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And he is true. He's true to his plan. He's true to his word. And he will see it to completion because he's going to come back. But instead of being humble and low on a donkey, he's coming on a royal steed. Revelation 19. Once I get out of the concordance. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called, say it with me, faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is none so high and holy, King of kings, the one and only. You are the Lord. You are adored. We just cried that out as a church. This is what Jesus is about right now. Everything, everything, everything is working toward the preparation of his return. And we are promised there's suffering. We are promised there's heartache. We're promised that even the earth groans for his return because he will make it right someday. And that those are pillars that we can stand on. His identity, he is Lord. What is he like? He is faithful and true. Even when my circumstances move me to want to question him, I'm reminded of the truth that I need. He remains God. He remains perfect in his character. Even when I don't get it, it doesn't change the reality of who he is and what he's about. When we think about this third pillar of experience, this is where we actually do stuff as followers of Christ. So I, I want to work toward an actual plan of what do we do when, we face, when we're faced with unmet expectations with God. We're going to find our guidance from one of Jesus' followers, Peter. You know Peter. Open mouth, insert foot, right? He's probably the person we identify with the most of all of Jesus' disciples, especially extroverts like me. Peter was the one who said, uh, when Jesus told his disciples that they would all fall away from him, he's like, not me. Those jokers will, but I won't. And Jesus looked at him right in the face and he said, truly, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so Peter experienced that. Then he saw the power of the resurrection and he received the Holy Spirit and God has used him as a mouthpiece for the church ever since. God inspired Peter to write two letters. And if there's anyone who has learned how to deal with unmet expectations, I believe it'd be him. So let me read this passage from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you recall that I said that uh, when we are going through unmet expectations with God, we're vulnerable? We're weak emotionally, physically, and often spiritually. We're prime hunting grounds. And we have an enemy that he, his only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to rob God of as much glory as possible. And while he can't condemn your soul if you're in Christ... He can cast seeds of doubt. You must be different than other people. 
there must be something wrong with you to have this happen in your life. And just look at everybody else around you. Don't they have it all together? Pray? I mean, you don't even know how to pray. Is God really good? Have you guys ever wrestled with doubts like that? Thoughts like that? The enemy is relentless. So let's work our way backward through this passage. It says, be sober-minded and be watchful. The idea of be sober-minded means to be wise. Have a wise response. It says, be sober-minded. That means it also is saying, don't be drunk-minded. And I've watched cops. It never works out well. It means that we've got we to gotta stay on guard. Back up. It says, casting all your cares, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. This moves us to this third pillar of experience where we cry out to Jesus. We cry out to Jesus. He is God. He is faithful and true. We cry out to him. But let's take the word cry and turn it into something actionable. We'll use it as an acronym. C. We cast our cares on him. Cast your cares on him. The thing that is helping us the most as we deal with grief and and something that wasn't our plan. I mean, eight weeks before this happened, we were, uh, my mother-in-law was at the top of her game. It was Christmas. Everything was good and right with the world and Santa hats were flying and wonderful. Eight weeks later, this was not our plan. And the thing that has helped us the most is to keep talking it out. But this is where we cast our cares on him. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is faithful and true. And he can take your greatest question and your loudest shout. You just got to get it out. You got to get out the shout. Say, I don't like it. This is not good. Where are you? Are you kidding me? Especially when life just keeps stacking and stacking and stacking because this is how life is. It's not just one thing at one time. It's like a lot of stuff at the same time. And you're just going, are you serious, Clark? (laughs) Journal it. Cry it out. Write poetry. Go to coffee and just keep the conversation going. You got to get it out. Because if you bottle it and you stuff it and you hold that pain inside, you become hunting ground for an enemy who will try to take you out. We cast our cares on him. See, R, release what you cannot change. Release what you cannot change. I know some of you are trying to play guess the blank game. 
release what you cannot change. This is what I hear often. If only I had known. If only we had said this, if only we had intervened, if only, if only, if only, then maybe I wouldn't be caught up in this hurt. If only I could have done this, if only she would have done that. But you cannot change the circumstance and you can't change other people. You can't do it and you can't change God. So what can you change? Your own heart, your own mind. But there is only one thing that can bring that change of heart and mind, and that's the why, and that's yield to the king. It's what we saw Jesus do. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and crying out to his father, he asked three times that he not have to drink the cup of suffering that was laid out for him. But the, the, the landing place, the finishing point of Christ to his father was what? Not my will, but yours be done. And there's been a great song on the radio. Uh, a young lady sings, I can't think of her name right now, but it's, it's, the song is called Thy Will Be Done. Hillary Scott. This is where we unlock Freedom. There is a powerful transfer to say, you are God, I am not, I will trust in you. You are God, I am not, I will trust in you. I don't get it, but I know you, you are faithful and true, I will trust in you. This is what we do. This is, this is a wise plan. Peter says, humble yourselves, casting all your cares on him. Be watchful and mindful, sober-minded. So we cry out to Jesus. And as we do that, the final pillar we stand on is our relationships. And this is where we fill in the gap for other people and we help others cry out. You help others cry out. That's what really solidifies the lesson for yourself. When you are actually used of God to bring help and hope to someone else in the midst of their circumstance, you relearn and you are reminded God really does heal the brokenhearted. So we help others cry out. Peter will say this in this passage. He says, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So let me ask you this. How many of you have lost a parent? How many of you have miscarried? How many of you have lost a job? How many of you have gone through the pain of depression? How many of you have had unexpected illness? 
or diagnosis. Don't you see? We are the same. One of the greatest lies that could ever be told to us is that we're alone in our pain and our suffering. That's a scary spot. But we are the same. There have been people in each service that have kept raising their hand because all of the above have happened to them. We could go down the list of further pains. Unmet expectations. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought my first marriage would have lasted. I thought my second marriage would have lasted. You are not alone. This weekend, we're launching a new ministry. It's available now on weekends, and it's a prayer partner ministry. We have people that have been trained in how to pray, how to listen, and how to help you cry out. We have a plan of follow-up for those that go and see them of further additional help. You'll find them behind the Welcome Center. This weekend they have green lanyards on and in the future they'll be purple. But you can go today and they can help you cry out. You are not alone. And fortunately, we don't have to just end in suffering. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, we're on God's train. And this train is bound for what? 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 This train is bound for glory. Pain is not the end. Jesus is preparing for his return and he will make all things right. He will heal your broken heart totally, fully, and completely. He's coming. He will see us through. Do not believe the lie that he has left you behind. He says in John 10 that my sheep know my voice and I call them by name and no one can take them from my hand. No one can snatch them from my grasp. And then he says no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So you have the hand of the son, you have the hand of the father and you have the sealing work of the Holy Spirit who comes in us. You cannot be kicked off the train. He's got you. He's coming for all of us. And in the meantime, we love as best as we can. We come alongside people as best as we can. And perhaps our pain becomes our greatest ministry. Because there's no no two more powerful words than to come across someone who has your story and you look at them in the eye and you go, me too. Me too. I think that has been the greatest help. Because without saying anything beyond that, you know that person gets it. You can be 
someone's me too. If you're available to the Lord with your pain. Me too. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our salvation. Thank you that uh, you are God. You are faithful and true. Thank you that you came for us once to save us from our sin. But Lord, thank you that you are fulfilling the plan to come again. Thank you that pain and suffering is not the end. But Lord, help us cry out to you and help us help others do the same. We love you, Lord. I ask your comfort and peace on those who are wrestling with the unexpected. And I pray that as a family, we would cry out to you in worship because you alone are worthy of our praise. Amen.